Hey, we're in a series called Spring Cleaning. Pastor Tim spoke an amazing message last week on abuse. If you haven't had a chance, I want to encourage you to go check it out. Today, I'm uh, just going to give you guys a warning. We're going to be talking about something pretty heavy. We're going to be talking about sex, sexual sin, pornography. So I'm just throwing it out there right now um, for everyone, especially if there's any kids in the room. Um, this might make, it's probably going to make some of you uncomfortable, but it's going to be okay. And I promise you that this is a message of hope. This is a message of redemption. So just bear with me. Listen to the whole message, okay? You guys good so far? All right. Let's jump right into it. We're going to read Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. Here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We're going to jump to Genesis chapter 2, verses 24. Here's what it says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And we're going to look at one more, Leviticus chapter 18, verses 20, 23, just to give some context. This is um, God setting an expectation of proper sexual relationships for the people and the nation of Israel. And what he's saying is, he's, you guys are going to look different than every other nation, every other people group. And so he sets us certain guidelines, he sets certain standards. And so the whole chapter of Leviticus 18 is here's how we are as the, the, the nation of Israel, here's how we're going to approach sex and sexual relationships. And we're going to look at a very small portion of it, but the whole chapter is about that. But Leviticus chapter 18, verses 20, 23, and there's a specific reason why I'm hitting this verse, and it'll make sense later. Starting verse 20, this is what it says. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of the Lord. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. You shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall, you, shall any woman give herself to an animal and lie with it. It is a perversion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us here together. God, I, I pray in everything that is said this morning, we would understand that the hope of the world is Jesus. You are the hope. You are the solution. No matter what we're struggling with, no matter what we're going through, you are the solution. I pray that this morning we would feel close to you and we would go deeper in our relationship with you. God, I pray there'd be less of me and more of you, that the words that come out of my mouth are not my words, but your words. And God, I pray that the Tampa Bay Lightning would win a third Stanley Cup. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Amen. Has, uh, who here's ever flown a kite? Has anyone ever here flown a kite before? Who's like, who's actually like successfully flown a kite? I have not. I have not. Um, I'm really bad at flying a kite, like Charlie Brown bad. I'm so bad at it. Now, we were in Colorado, living in Colorado uh, about a year ago, and we decided it, it was, you know, let's go kite, let's go fly a kite. This is a great idea. My son, Elliot, was four at the time. Where we lived, there was this perfect, big, open field. It was a day where the wind was blowing strong and it's like sunny. This is like the perfect kite flying weather. So we get the kite, we're in the open field, and me and my wife, my son Elliot and my daughter, 
And I'm like, I got this. We're going to do this. So I try to fly the kite, and it's blowing. The wind's blowing all over the place, and the kite's going this way, and the kite's going that way. But I could not, for the life of me, get it to fly. And at one point, the, the, like, it, like, it was so windy that it like, blew out of my hands, and it's on the ground, and I'm chasing after it. And I tried this for about 15 minutes, and like, just was not successful. Did not matter what I did. I could not get the, this, this, this thing to fly. So my wife, Lindsay, comes up to me, and she's like, you've struggled long enough. It's my turn. She grabs the kite, and I'm not, not even kidding, within 10 seconds, has the thing flying in the air. And it's like perfectly, and I'm looking at her, and the wind's blowing. I'm like, you're amazing. And she's like flying the kite. And, and it, was, it was amazing. As long as like she had it secured, it was anchored, the kite's flying. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so cool. Like, if I, would, I, I couldn't do this, but like when she's doing it, she's successful, and, the, and she's got full control over the kite. Now, in life, Here's what happens. We mix up our feelings with truth. And we think that our feelings are true. And our feelings are kind of like when I was flying the kite. It's, it's let, going this way. It's going that way. We, it, it, like we, do, we don't have control over our feelings. And they kind of get away from us. And it's all over the place. And if our feelings are not anchored in truth, they will be all over the place. Our feelings have to be anchored in truth. Your feelings are not truth. Your feelings are feelings. And we need to have, the tr- we need to have our feelings anchored in truth. As long as Lindsay had the kite, it was secured, it was anchored, and she was able to control. We need to have our feelings anchored in truth. And we believe that the Bible is absolute truth. I'm not just over here living my truth. No, we believe that there's absolute truth and it is the word of God. Feelings are not authoritative. Our feelings are not authoritative. And truth is not an internal, ex- an internal interpretation that I'm over here feeling. No, truth is an external reality founded in the word of God. And my first thought this morning is that there is absolute truth and it is the word of God. Before we, like, any conversation on sex and sexuality has to start with the word of God, which is absolute truth. Now, we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. In the image of God, male and female, he created them. We have to go back to the beginning. God created us, humans, in his own image. We are God's image bearers on this earth. We are literally representing God to his creation. Everywhere we go, we are representing God to this earth. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the company Apple, whenever they create a product, a new product, the designers and the creators of that product, they sign the inside of the product with their name. So they inscribe inside the product. So no one, like you don't know it's there. I, didn't, I don't know it's there, but they know. They literally sign the inside of their product saying, this is something that I Created. And what you need to understand is that God's signature is in you and on you. You are made in God's image. God's DNA is in you and it's on you. You are God's image bearers and you belong to him. And before we go anywhere else, understand that God created you on purpose for purpose and his signature is on your life. You belong to him before anything else. I, uh, I didn't run track in high school until my senior year. And in my, but in my junior year, um, one of my good friends, he was on the track team and he ran the steeplechase, which is a 3,000 meter race. You jump over hurdles, you jump over a water pit. It's basically the, the race from hell, because it's not fun. Anyway, so he had, uh, he had his wisdom teeth pulled out the day before competition. 
And the, the morning, that morning, the morning of the competition, my track, the track coach came up to me and he said, hey, we need someone to replace so-and-so. He can't run the race. He got his wisdom teeth pulled. Can you run the steeplechase? And I'm like, uh, he's like, you get to miss a day of school. Sign me up. So, so I, I line up, I'm about to run the steeplechase, and I'm wearing basketball shoes, I'm wearing baggy shorts, a baggy t-shirt, and I look around me, and like, people are wearing spandex, they got like special cleats with spikes, they have these like special sunglasses, they even have fancy water bottles, I'm like, what is going on? They're like talking to each other, they're using all this like fancy running language, and I'm like, I am in a foreign country right now. Like I, like, I look around, I'm like, I do not belong here. I look different, I talk different, I act different. Even the way they're, they're running like gazelles, and I don't know what the opposite of a gazelle is, but that was me. And on no joke, I finished third last place. And the only reason I finished third last place is because the other two quit before the race was over. But I realized in that moment, I, like, I don't look like everyone else. And here's my second thought this morning. We are going to look different from the rest of the world. Because we are God's image bearers, because we are God's representatives, because we are living by God's standards, you are going to look different from the rest of the world. You're going to talk different. You're going to think different. You're going to act different. And the way we approach sex is going to be different. The way we view sex is going to be different from the rest of the world. Now, Adam and Eve come in. God creates everything. Everything's perfect. Adam and Eve show up, and they mess everything up. They sin. Sin enters the world, and they mess everything up. And it's not just that we're broken because of sin. Not just, we're not just sinful. We're not just broken, but we're actually all sexually broken as well. From birth. Because sin, because sin enters the world, we are all sexually broken. Remaining celibate, celibate isn't going to heal your brokenness. Saying no to temptation won't heal your brokenness. Being married won't heal your brokenness. Like, trying to stay pure isn't going to heal your brokenness. The only thing that can heal your brokenness, the only solution to the sin in our life is Jesus and having a relationship with Jesus. There's nothing else that will heal your brokenness. And because we live in a fallen world, we are all broken. All of us. There's no exception. We are all broken, which leads me to my fourth thought. God establishes a clear sexual standard and it's holiness. Say holiness. So he establishes a clear sexual standard. And this is God's intent. This is God's, like, this is what he designed for sex to be. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. We read it earlier. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. By the way, one flesh means sex. And God created sex, and it's a good thing. So here's God's intent. One man, one woman in the context of marriage which means any sexual relationship or contact outside of one man, one woman in the context of marriage is sin. Any sexual engagement outside the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman is sin. Because marriage is a sacred, holy covenant between a man and a woman and God. It's safe. In marriage, we're supposed to be vulnerable and honest and open. It's supposed to be a fulfilling, rich, meaningful relationship where there's safety and there's security. This was God's original design and original intent for sex. And then the other side to the standard is found in Leviticus 18. 
And this was the Jewish sexual ethic or the Jewish sexual standard. And God had to establish a sexual ethic because back then all the different nations and all the different people groups were doing all kinds of crazy things. And so God says, you're going to look different from the rest of the world, so I'm going to give you clear, a clear outline, a clear standard to live by. And so he wanted to separate people. And what he's saying is, you're going to look different. As Christians, as Christ followers, as people of God, you're going to look different from the rest of the world. So he creates a clear standard that is different, which leads me to my next thought. Holiness is the goal. And with this whole conversation, our goal is holiness. Marriage isn't the goal. Holiness is the goal. Because if you have a sexual past you will, and you don't deal with it, it will come into your marriage and it will mess with your marriage. Holiness is the goal. Being celibate isn't the goal. Holiness is the goal. By the way, our culture today is not, it's not worse than it was back then. It, it, it's not like today is worse than it was back then. Back then things were just as messed up and just as crazy. In fact, they were probably a little more open about it. The city of Corinth was messed up. You walked around the city of Corinth and there were naked statues all over the place, which is modern day pornography. And it was considered, um, uh, it was considered like worship to go to, the, to go to a temple and sleep with prostitutes. That was a, considered a form of worship. And so sexual sin was prevalent back then just as it is today. And sexual sin was actually an issue in the church, which is why the Apostle Paul addresses it over and over again in his letters. And it was very prevalent outside of the church. Today isn't worse. It's not better, it just looks different. Same issue, same sin, it just looks a little different today. And we're gonna talk about that a little bit later. Now, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Glad you asked. Jesus actually addresses this issue. Mark chapter seven, verses 21, 23, this is what he said. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, there it is, theft, murder, adultery, there it is again, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. So what Jesus is saying is that all sin, not just sexual sin, but all sin is what defiles a person and it comes from within. Now that word sexual morality that God uses is, is the, the Greek word is, is pornea, which is actually the word the pornography comes from. And when he used this word, what he's saying is he's encompassing all sexual sin. He was talking to a Jewish audience, and when he uses that word for sexual morality, they would have understood Genesis 2, Leviticus 18. They would have understood the Jewish sexual ethics. So when he says this, he's actually addressing all sexual sin. They would have understood, okay, Genesis 2 and Leviticus 18, got it. I know what you're saying, Jesus. But then he says this thing in the Sermon on the Mount, and he actually takes sexual sin to a whole other level. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what he's saying is, it's not just physically being with someone else other than your spouse. He's saying if you have inappropriate thoughts about someone else that is not your spouse, you have committed adultery in your heart. So any sexual thought outside of your spouse or desire outside of your spouse is now committed sin. Now, I've talked, I've spoken with so many people that when the topic of sex comes up, they look at me like I'm an alien. Like, you can't just be with one person. 
You, like, wait until marriage? Are you crazy? What, like, looking at pornography is a healthy thing. This is what I'm told. I've had so many conversations. Now, hear me out. This is going to get, we're going to get real in a moment. You guys good with this? You guys good so far? Okay, we're going to get real. There's this thing called the imprint gene. And here's what it is. The imprint gene is whenever you have a sexual experience, it imprints your brain. And when you have a sexual experience with another person, your brain chemistry adapts to that other person. Literally, you psychologically and physiologically adapt to that other person. Now, your very first sexual experience imprints you more than any other sexual experience. And that person, now you are attracted to them for the remainder of your life. Now, what happens, and to me, this is actually confirming God created us. He created us with brains that are amazing things. And to me, this confirms God's original intent for sex, which is one man, one woman in the context of marriage. Now, what happens is when you have multiple sexual partners, your brain continues to adapt and reconstruct, and you create a pattern where your brain is now adapting to multiple people. And once you find the one person you want to be with, your brain and your body get gets bored, and you're now, it's telling you, you have to move on to someone else, and you've, all of a sudden, you've created a sexual appetite that can't be satisfied. And pornography has the same effect. When you look at pornography, it's a little bit lesser, but it imprints your brain, and you're training your brain to want to have multiple partners. And pornography is incredibly dangerous. Like, someone, I had an argument with someone um, not even that long ago. They're trying to convince me that pornography is good for you. And I'm like, let me throw you some statistics. I'm going to throw it at you right now. Whenever, uh, Whenever you look at pornography, your brain releases more dopamine than when someone sniffs cocaine, which means pornography is actually more addictive than cocaine. They did a brain study that compared the brain of someone addicted to pornography with someone who was addicted to cocaine, and the brain damage was the same the lack of blood flow to the brain was actually the same. Now, porn used to be pretty much exclusively for for dudes, but there's been a drastic increase in use um, in pornography among women. And before the average age of first exposure was 11 years old, now the average age of first exposure for porn is nine years old. Um, It's gonna get even even better. One study found that 98% of men admitted to watching porn within the last six months. Conservatively, that number was 90 to 95%. In the church, 68% 68 of men admitted to looking at porn regularly. And in some studies, they think it's as high as 76%. And as I said earlier, there's a drastic increase among women. One one survey found that 23 to 33% of women in the United States admitted to looking at porn regularly. And one therapist actually suggests that it's more like 40 to 50% because women are less likely to admit it than men. And this next one is the most shocking thing that I found. Um, The use of porn increases the chance of an affair by 300%. Um, Teenagers, it's my my world. Um, They found that 11 and 13 year olds were thinking and talking about sex and 14 to 17 year olds were starting to become sexually active. That was 10 years ago. Now, nine and 10 year olds are thinking and talking about sex. And 11 to 13 year olds are now becoming sexually active. And a lot of that has to do with the early exposure to porn, which by the way, porn isn't just like 
what you think of it, of it to be. If you see an intimate scene in a movie, in a show, even though there may not be nudity, that is a form of porn because we are looking at a moment that we're not supposed to look at, which causes our mind and our thoughts to wonder. Very quickly, five things porn does to you. It destroys your view on men and women. The second thing it does is it destroys your view on sex. The third thing it does is it actually destroys your brain. The fourth thing it does is it creates shame and guilt. And the last thing it does is it teaches you how to lie. Because when people look at porn, they don't want to be honest about it. Understand something. You cannot overcome your porn addiction. You cannot overcome your sexual sin on your own. You will never do it by yourself. You can't. You can't do it. You cannot discipline your way out of addiction. You cannot work your way out of addiction. We need a savior and his name is Jesus and he is the only one that can help us. Now, take a deep breath. It's gonna be okay. This is my daughter, Adelie. I don't know if there's a picture of her or not. Do we have a picture of Adelie? Hey! She is the cutest little thing. Um, we call her sweet and spicy because she's like so, so sweet. But then at the same time, she's like really strong-willed and like she will, she will, she will beat you. Um, she's, she's amazing. She's the cutest little thing, but she's very, she's like an independent strong woman. Like, like she will do what she wants when she wants. And um, for example, when she wants a snack, she goes, my knack, my knack, because she's two and she can't, you know, she's learning how to talk. And that means my snack. And she, she wants to take the snack and pour it herself. Like she wants to put it in the bowl herself. Like you, and if you try to help her, she'll like smack you. She's like, no, let me do it. Um, but what's frustrating is when she's trying to put her, she, when she's trying to put her shoes on, because like her cute little chubby fingers can't do it. And so she's like trying to put her shoes on, but she can't. And so she, she needs me or my wife to help her put her shoes on. Like, doesn't matter how hard she tries, she cannot put her shoes on on her own. She needs me and Lindsay to help her because she, her cute little chubby fingers can't do it. She just can't do it. Understand, you cannot overcome your problems and your issues and your sin on your own. You need help. We need Jesus. Only Jesus can heal your brokenness. Only Jesus can heal your issues. Only Jesus can set you free. There's no other antidote. He always has been and he always will be the solution to your problem. And it doesn't matter if it's sexual sin or a different sin. He is the solution to your problem. And if you try to do it on your own, you will fail. And this is the age-old issue that we've been running into for years. Let's look at the Ten Commandments. God gives the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel. And he says, here's some guidelines, here's some things that are a standard that's going to separate you from everyone else. Here's some, some rules to live by. And Israel got these and thought to themselves, cool, God, thanks, high five, we've got this. We don't need you anymore. What's hilarious is they couldn't even get past the very first commandment, which is like, thou shalt have no other gods before me. See, the Ten Commandments were designed to expose our sin Show us how sinful we are, how holy God is, and make us realize, I can't do this without God. See, the Ten Commandments were designed to push us towards God, not away from Him. Yet, in our own pride, we thought to ourselves, I've got this. And they failed miserably. Jesus does the same thing with the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is this great, beautiful piece of Scripture that's quoted over, all, over and over again. It's quoted all the time. But if you actually stop to think about some of the contents of the Sermon on the Mount, it's pretty shocking. 
God creates, Jesus creates an impossible standard. Here's, here's some, some examples, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Hold up. If, like, if I would have been there as a Jewish audience, I would have been like, what? Like the Pharisees were the gold standard of what it meant to be righteous, and they lived their entire lives studying scripture, studying texts, and living righteously. They were the example. Now you're telling me to be as right. Like, I can't do that. And then you say, excuse me, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus paints an impossible picture of how we are to live. And he's standing there saying, exactly, because I am the answer to that. Like, the Sermon on the Mount, the Ten Commandments were designed to expose our sin, show us how holy God is, and make us understand we can't do this on our own. We need Jesus. They were designed to push us towards God. I don't have this. I, we don't just need moral guidelines. We need a Savior. We need Jesus to come into our lives and help us live this out. Now, let's get, I'm really practical. Let's get practical. These are four practical ways to overcome whatever issue you're dealing with. Four practical ways. You guys with me right now? You guys awake? Alive? Doing good? Here we go. Number one, confess your sins to someone. Number one, confess your sins to someone. When I was about nine or ten years old, I was at my grandparents' house, and they had an above-ground pool, and they had a stepladder. And my grandfather was a carpenter, and he had aluminum, like thin aluminum siding stacked on the side of the pool. And what we would do is we'd run around the edge of the pool and like jump in and, you know, being, being a kid. And this, this one time I was running around the edge of the pool, I slipped and I fell onto the aluminum siding and it cut me open. And it cut me from like right here from my arm all the way across my chest. And it was really deep. And there's the, the one on my arm was especially, it was the deepest and it was the longest. And so my grandmother like is free, you know, it's really bad whenever your grandmother does this like points at you with her like mouth cover, like you know it's really bad. So she like cleans it up, covers it up. She puts this giant butterfly bandaid on the worst cut on my arm. So we're at the, we're at the ER and they're, you know, they're inspecting the cut and the nurse is like, hey, can we remove the bandaid? And I'm like, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And I'm like, it's not that bad. It's a little, you know, it's a little cut, no big deal. That's like the least worst part. So she, we take the bandaid off. She's like, no, we gotta check it out. So she takes the bandaid off and she's like, that's the worst part. Like, we abs like, that's the worst part. We have to stitch it up. I ended up getting 36 stitches that day. And, uh, and, the, and the nurse told me, had you not shown me, like, that, the, the, the cut on your arm, it would have been infected and it would have caused major issues. Understand, God can't heal what you conceal. Like, if you, if you don't expose the problem in the issue, God can't handle it. God, God, not that he can't handle it. God can't deal with it. You actually have to call it out. You actually have to confess your sins. You actually have to bring it to the surface, bring the problem to the surface to deal with it. James chapter 5, 16 says this, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Name it. Call it for what it is. It's easy to tell God, God, here's my issues. It's really hard to tell another human, here's what I'm dealing with. But I'm telling you, the truth will always come to the surface one way or the other. And it's better for you to proactively confess your sins and call out the problems that you have instead of waiting until you get caught. I'm telling you, it always comes to the surface. So confess your sins. Actually, like, 
name it and call it out. Which leads to my second thought, my second point, is deal with your past. Confess your sins and deal with your past. Most issues specifically in the area of sexuality um, can probably be traced back to a moment in your childhood or in your teen years. It could be early exposure to sex or pornography, having your first sexual experience at a young age, being abused, someone taking advantage of you, perverted talk, maybe having a moment of loneliness and you compromise your standard to feel loved. Whatever it may be, there's probably a moment where that thing entered in your life. And those who choose to neglect the past are doomed to repeat it. Because your past, if you don't deal with it, will sneak into your present and it will destroy your future. And God wants to help heal you from your past to lead you into your amazing future. This one time, uh, I was a youth pastor at the church I grew up in in Canada, and the worship leader had a gift, it was around Christmas time, had a gift for the lead pastor, and the lead pastor wasn't around. And so apparently I told him, uh, he's like, hey, can you give this to the lead pastor? And apparently I said, put it on, the, on my desk and I'll give it to him this week. A couple of weeks go by, his name's Chris. Chris comes up to me, he's like, hey, Paul, did you uh, give the lead pastor the gift that I had? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, the, the gift, I remember we had a conversation about it, you told me to put it on your desk. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. He's like, oh, well, I have a gift. Go check your desk. So I looked in my office. The gift wasn't there. Looked in my car. The gift wasn't there. Looked at home. The gift wasn't there. I thought he was, like, messing with me. Like, I'm like, ha, 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 good joke, man. And he texts me back. He's like, no, seriously, like, there's a gift. I'm like, well, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. A few months go by, and I'm cleaning my office, and I find a gift. And it says, to Pastor Roy from Chris. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. It, like, he was, like, he was serious. There, actually, there actually was a gift. But I promise you, I could not for the life of me remember that conversation. It's like I had amnesia or whatever. I, I could not remember, for, like, for the life of me, I promise you, I do not remember having that conversation with them about that gift. Understand, some of you keep remembering a sin that God has already forgotten and forgiven. He's like, some of you keep remembering and reminding you of a sin that God has already forgotten and already forgiven. Check it out, Psalm 103, verse 12. He has removed our sins as far from the east as from the west. The north and south pole are fixed axes. You can go to the north pole. You can go to the south pole. But there is no east pole and there is no west pole. So when God says he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west, he has removed it far, far, far away. Stop living like you're in close proximity to your sin because God has forgiven you. He has released you. He has, he has removed your sin from your life. And when you deal with your past, your past no longer has grip of your future and of your present. The reason why I read that verse in Leviticus 18 is because it says, it is an abomination. It is a perversion. Not you. It. You are not your sin. You are not your past. You are not your mistakes. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are released and you are restored. You are not your sin. You are forgiven. Deal with your past. Here's my third thought. Find community. Confess your sins. Deal with your past. Find community. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9 and 12. I don't have time to read it. It's a great verse. Trust me, read it yourself. Brene Brown says this. She is an uh, expert on shame therapy, and she says this. The solution to shame is not connecting with someone 
even though our natural tendency when we experience shame is to retreat. Some of us are struggling because we've retreated and pulled ourselves away from human connection when it comes to our struggles. And for whatever reason, our human condition tells us to show the best and hide the worst. But if we actually want to find healing from our issues, we actually need to show people, safe people, the worst of us so that we're not struggling and dealing with it on our own. That we actually have support. By the way, this is why we believe in D groups and C groups. Like we actually believe that through community, we have people praying for us, supporting us, encouraging us, people that we can call on. There have been so many crises in this church that you don't know about, but they, what those, when crisis happens, they call their D group and their C group and they show up big time. Like there's some people who are like, I don't, like y'all love me way too much. Like, and I want to encourage you, if you're not in a D group and C group, join a D group and, D group and C group. Find connection, find community, so you don't have to deal with these things on your own. Now, um, this next picture, this is Andre Vezilevsky. He's the uh, goalie for the Tampa Bay Lightning. He's probably the best goalie in the world. Now, most of you don't, may not know this, but I, I played hockey growing up. I grew up in Canada. Hockey is my favorite sport. I love watching it. I love playing it. And there's this uh, unwritten rule in hockey. Well, first of all, the goalie's the most important player on the ice. Out of all the players, your goalie's your most important player. But the second thing is that you do not touch the goalie. Do not mess with the goalie. If you mess with the goalie, you're messing with the entire team. And I remember this one time when I was a kid and I was playing ice hockey, and someone tripped my goalie. I was on the bench. And, like, it wasn't, like, an intentional, like, bump. It was, like, a full-on, like, like stick in the, in the skates pulling, like, full-on trip the goalie. And I'm like, no, you didn't. And so I'm, I'm about to get off the bench to go after this guy because that's what you do. Don't worry. It's okay. We're all smiling and while we're beating each other up. We're Canadian. It's fine. But before I could even get my butt off the bench, my entire team was on it. Like, everyone on the ice was on this guy beating him up. Because if you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. And the thing about community is if you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us, which is why we need to be in community. When we are in relationship with one another, we can fight the battles with one another. You don't have to struggle alone. You don't have to go through this alone. You can have people fighting for you, supporting you, praying for you, encouraging you. You can call someone at your weakest moment, I am struggling right now, I don't know what to do, and they can be there to pray for you. We need to be in community. If you're not connected, get connected. And here's my last thought, and if you don't get anything else from the message, this is the most important part. Jesus is the answer to your brokenness. Jesus is the answer to your brokenness. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11 is the best part. And such were some of you, 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I need to read that again because it's so good. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Jesus is the answer to your brokenness. He, can, he has washed you, he has sanctified you, he has justified you, he has healed you. If the blood of Jesus was enough back then, it is enough today. He can heal your brokenness. He's the answer to your problem. He is the answer to your sin. Whenever you're struggling, turn to Jesus. It doesn't matter what you're going through. What matters is who you're turning to. Turn towards Jesus. He is the one that can heal you. He is the one that can help you. Whatever problem, whatever sin, he can help you. You cannot do it on your own. You need Jesus. He is the answer to your brokenness. One of, my, um, one of my really close friends from Canada, I was, I, was, I was visiting my family in Canada and I was speaking at my old church. This is after I'd moved to the US. And one of my closest friends from growing up, he was there. I hadn't seen him in years. And he was married, he had three kids. And I was talking about something similar. I was talking about dealing with your past and confessing your sins. And after the service, he pulled me aside with tears in his eyes and he said, I gotta tell you something and I've never told anyone else, but um, I, I, I cheated on my wife a few months ago. It only lasted about a week. I ended that relationship, but no one else knows. I also have a porn addiction and I don't know what to do about it. And I'm like, dude, you need, you need to tell your wife. Like, you have to, you have to confront this thing. And so he, he tells his wife, she was obviously mad and upset. She grabs the kids and leaves, but she comes back Mind you, he confessed it. He didn't get caught. He confessed it. He wanted to deal with it. So they, they, they begin to see a, a therapist together. They include a pastor. He starts dealing with his past. He starts including other people. And slowly over the next few months, their, their relationship, their marriage, finds healing, restoration. He finds healing personally. She finds healing personally. And today, their marriage is stronger than it has ever been. God redeemed them. God restored them. They're still married. They still have kids, and they are happier, and they are better off than they ever have been. And it's because they let Jesus come in and heal their problems. And I've seen it over and over and over again. Broken marriages, young men dealing with sexual sin, people dealing with issues. But when they confess their sins and deal with their past and include other people and let Jesus heal the brokenness. I've seen it over and over again, miracle after miracle of people healed, finding wholeness, finding healing, finding holiness in Jesus. I don't know how he does it. It's supernatural, but Jesus heals our broken hearts and brings wholeness to our lives. And if he did it for them, he can do it for you. I wanna pray for you this morning. If everyone can close your eyes and bow your heads. If you're here this morning, everything that was said, understand we are all broken and we all need Jesus. And whether, you, maybe you've been, maybe this is your first time in church, maybe you've been coming to church for a while, but you feel far from God and you've never really given your life to Jesus. You've never entered in a relationship with Jesus. I wanna open up an opportunity for you to do that right now. So if you're here and you, want to give your life to Jesus, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand right now. If that's you, put your hand up right now. Every eye closed, every head bowed. And if you put your hand up, our ushers are gonna give you a gift. Thank you, I see that hand. 
And just leave that hand up. We, have one, we want to give you a gift. We want to help you on your journey with Jesus. We will help you walk through that. Anyone else, if, if you want to give your life to Jesus, put your hand up. We want to pray with you. Okay, awesome. Can you put your hand down? I want everyone in this room to pray this prayer. This prayer, this, again, it's not my words, but if you say this prayer with faith, you're beginning your relationship with Jesus, and this is the greatest miracle ever. So if that's you, I want, every, I want everyone in this room to pray this prayer. Say, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I invite you into my heart. My life belongs to you. Forgive me of all my sins. You're my king. You're my ruler. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Come on, it's the greatest decision you will ever make is to submit and give your life to Jesus. Second thing I want to say is um, on June 25th, we have what we call a freedom weekend. And if this morning, I believe that Jesus can totally heal us in a moment, absolutely. But some of the stuff, especially when it comes to sexual sin, it might take some time to find healing and wholeness. And so if maybe some stuff got stirred up this morning, you're like, there's some stuff I need to work on, some stuff I need to deal with. I want to encourage you to go to the freedom weekend on June 25th. This is a great opportunity to work through the process of finding healing and wholeness in this area and in many other areas of your life. So I want to encourage you, come on June 25th. It's going to be a great time. Let me pray for you one more time. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. God, you're amazing. And no matter what we're dealing with and what we're struggling through, you are a good God and you love us. And I pray that this morning, everyone in this room would know how much you love them, how much you care about them. You're, you've signed your name on their life. But whatever sin or issue they're struggling with, I pray that you would help them find wholeness and healing when they confess their sins, when they deal with their past, when they include other people, and most importantly, when they include you, that they would find healing and wholeness in the area of sexuality and sexual sin, but in any area of sin as well. Father, we need you. And I pray that today that everyone would experience your love, your acceptance, your grace, and your redemption. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.